Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Dynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Burke. In today's episode, we're going to discuss a few recent newsworthy items we think healthcare leaders should be considering. I'm here with Dynamics' Mindy McGrath and Ryan Hummel to talk about what's trending now. Ryan, what headlines have you been following lately? I think many folks in America are locked into the Roe versus Wade draft majority opinion that got leaked. And for those of you that don't know, Politico obtained a draft of the majority opinion from the Supreme Court, which seemingly struck down Roe v. Wade. And we're seeing kind of a real battle from a lawmaking perspective in D.C. and across the country. It, it is to be noted that this is still in draft and not final. And somehow, in some way, this this draft document, which has been verified as as real, got leaked out, and it caused quite the firestorm in the U.S. and And the Biden administration immediately went to look at past initiatives, like making sure that funds existed. It's creating quite a stir in in the United States. And just recently, the Senate unsuccessfully voted to try to codify Roe v. Wade. And the vote was was close along party lines for the most part, 49 to 51. And when we say codify, we mean that Congress itself was trying to enshrine or, or solidify this right or rule into formal systematic code. And an act of Congress is is the way to do that I and mean, put it into formal law. State legislatures can also codify rights by enacting law. So this was a federal attempt unsuccessfully, but it was it was a bit performative because I don't think anyone thought it would pass. And in order to codify Roe for, for Americans, uh, Congress would need to pass that law to provide the same protections that the response of Roe v. Wade did. So a law that states that women have the right to abortion without excessive government restrictions, and it would have been binding for all states. You think about this from a practical perspective. Roe v. Wade has been precedent in this country for many, many decades. And essentially, this ruling, if this is is close to what is finally rolled out or read out in June or July of this year, remands the rights for abortions to be legal or illegal back to the states. And so you think about what that does to an already disjointed healthcare system and how that will have such an impact on women's reproductive health. And even broader than that, thinking about the providers that really deliver care for women goes beyond just reproductive health. I mean, we're talking about women's health, just generally speaking, and how a ruling like this could have an impact on clinics closing down in different states and what that means to those types of centers and the ability to access care for women that may need more than more than an abortion. So I think it's it's clearly this is a huge, huge headline and we have a lot of unanswered questions about it, but I think even thinking more broadly or, or talking more broadly about the impact on overall women's health is something that we can't be short-sighted on because it will have an impact on that. The thing I thought was also interesting, right, is the White House response, which is really looking at other levers to provide access to care. And so when we think about what the Food and Drug Administration can do, because they control prescription drug access, and they could increase access to drugs that are used for medical abortions. And if you look at the stats today, I mean, medical abortions account for 
almost half of the overall abortions in the United States and must be dispensed by physicians in many states. So there may be some levers that we see being pulled by the White House beyond executive orders, but using agencies as well to try to at least provide some form of consistent access that may not be in the form of showing up to clinics, which is what we've seen be part of the delivery of care while the Roe v. Wade law has been in place. So this is one we're going to have to keep our eye on, I think, as it plays itself out, because the number of unanswered questions is really broad, and I think there's a lot of complexity to this, but I think we have an indicator, right, in where this is headed. Many of our podcasts rally around this idea and this quest to achieve a health equity in the United States. And what we mean by that is that someone in one zip code can have the exact same access to healthcare services as someone in another zip code. And we know that affluent zip codes or areas have much easier access to healthcare than impoverished areas. And this really exemplifies that women's productive health is a health equity issue. And this this ruling, no matter what place or what side you stand on, is going to reduce health equity for women's reproductive services. I think, Ryan, your point is so appropriate when it comes to really calling out who stands to lose the most when it comes to the potential overturning of Roe versus Wade, because we know that there are more than a dozen states that have trigger laws that essentially once Roe is no longer the de facto precedent of the land, that it will ban abortion in those states. And, you know, up to 26 states are, are theorized to to follow on and have limited access. Really, right now, as it stands, there is only 15 states and the District of Columbia that have access to abortion enshrined within their state laws. And we know historically, when you see these restrictions, right, um, it doesn't necessarily drive down the rate of overall abortions, but um, can lead to less safe abortion practices, and particularly hits the hardest those women that are already facing difficult financial circumstances, are impoverished, are living in low access areas, to your point. So I think some potential strong losses for this particular group. I want to talk a little bit more beyond just the the women's reproductive health issue and Roe versus Wade about some other news around individuals of lower economic status and their access to health care in the United States. And that is a recent report about Medicaid coverage and how that stands to change in the coming months as states start to restart their eligibility checks. Mindy, could you tell us a little bit more about that? When the public health emergency was issued during the the beginning stages of COVID, an element of that was that states could not roll people off of their Medicaid coverage. And as we start to move forward and think about the public health emergency being lifted, what that essentially means then is states will have to go back and they will need to look at their Medicaid roles and do an evaluation and conduct an evaluation on eligibility. When Medicaid was first established right back in 1965, it was established with the intention of expanding and contracting with the economy to 
provide that safety net when job losses were high. And so it made sense during this public health emergency when a lot of industries had to shutter their doors that you would have really a, a, a huge number of Medicaid enrollees on your rolls if you were a state. And the federal government actually passed legislation that helped to offset some of the costs associated with it. But now, as we're, we're kind of getting towards the end and expect that that public health emergency will be lifted soon, states are going to have a really heavy lift on their hands in terms of figuring out which enrollees can stay on Medicaid, which ones may roll off. Some may lose eligibility for a couple of days and then be able to be eligible again. So I think the, the issue for states, though, is there's a real backlog, and I think it's going to create a lot of confusion and will impact many individuals that are currently on Medicaid roles. I also think it's going to impact Medicaid managed care plans as well because they have so many members that they're managing on behalf of states and figuring out who's eligible still for Medicaid, who isn't, and how do you educate and ensure that the members really understand what is either coming up in terms of losing eligibility or how they re-enroll and be considered for eligibility again. So it's just this backlog as a result of the public health emergency. And because we saw you know, so many individuals enroll in Medicaid and stay on Medicaid during this time period, now we have this risk of seeing about 14 million enrollees actually losing Medicaid. And I think it's just, it's going to take some time to see how this plays out, but I don't doubt that there is going to be a lot of confusion among enrollees on just where they stand with their Medicaid coverage, which also has an impact then on, on providers, right, in terms of coverage and reimbursement and those types of things. So this cascading effect of the lift of the public health emergency goes beyond Medicaid, but it was telling to see the Kaiser Family Foundation's report that an estimated 14 million enrollees could actually lose their Medicaid coverage as we restart these eligibility checks. If we go back in time a little bit to 2012, that's when ACA's Medicaid expansion by state was considered unconstitutionally coercive of states, which then created this, you know, the last decade of a little bit of confusion where some states primarily led by Democratic governors, were able to expand and get the federal funding for expanding Medicaid, and some didn't. So this deal that the federal mandate did with Joe Biden with the COVID-enhanced Medicaid expansion has been really lucrative for states, right? Even those states that did not opt in for Medicaid. So I think I read somewhere that the states have actually collected more than $100 billion in Medicaid funding another financial relief in these last three budget years and only spending $47 billion. But that enhanced federal funding will cease during the quarter in which that, that public health emergency ends. To your point, Ryan, it's you know not just the courts that have a full plate these days when it comes to health care, but definitely the state legislatures, the federal legislatures. While we've all been tracking along some of these pieces around reproductive rights, or even Medicaid coverage, one thing that may be flying a little bit under the radar but has huge impact across the life sciences industry is this next round of user fee agreements that essentially set the, the goals and funding amounts for the FDA when it comes to things like 
reviewing medical devices, prescription drugs, generic drugs, biosimilars. And every five years, this actually needs to get reauthorized by Congress. So we are in this latest cycle now. We need to get everything reauthorized for the FDA to maintain its critical funding before September 30th. And after more than two months of delays, the FDA and the medtech industry were finally able to hammer out a new agreement. And the House Subcommittee on Health was able to propose a bill on May 4th to renew these user fee agreements for the next five years. And there are some, some notable developments within this latest version of the User Fee Act. There is a substantial amount of money set aside right around $1.8 billion to fund the review of medical devices, which I think as we've seen the rapid development over the last few years of the pandemic of things like laboratory testing and other devices that would fall into that space has proven critical. There are also specific policies around clinical trials related to health equity, particularly as the diversity of enrollees and diversity of sites are concerned. And Coming out of a lot of the chatter that we've heard recently around accelerated approvals related to some of the controversy around Aduhelm, there was a revised policy that made its way in there that gave the FDA a little bit more power to be able to rescind its approval for drugs that are cleared through this accelerated approval pathway. So even though it might not be top of mind when we're thinking about this legislation that really can shape the industry, this is the package that essentially sets the tone for how the FDA is going to be operating for, for the next five years. And as we negotiate towards that, that final authorization in September, we'll get a chance to see a lot of new policy potentially make its way into this package. In, in all the time that I've been in this industry, it always feels like it's a rush to get this done. I think what is different about this package, and it's because there was more focus right on the MEDUFA or MDUFA side of things, which is medical device. The other piece of this I think that is worthy of calling out is that the FDA doesn't just get these fees as part of a, a regular process. They are also on the hook to use these fees to make sure that they have the capacity over the next five years to really hit the goals that are outlined right in this agreement. And so that is having the right resources, making sure that they have a commitment to hiring a minimum number to meet the funding requirements. And why I think that is important is because we have also heard a lot of chatter recently about FDA missing PDUFA dates and the impact that that has on life science manufacturers and actually being able to bring a product to market. And so I think there is a little bit more accountability if this is how the finalized version looks in terms of the fees to be paid and the tiering in which those fees are paid, as well as what the FDA signs up for to ensure that they have an adequate amount of resources to be able to review applications in a timely manner. So I think that's part of why we've seen a little bit of a delay in, in getting this back to, to Congress to review is that there was some jockeying going on, right, to make sure that there was a little bit more rigor around what the renewal of the MDUFA and the PDUFA fee schedule as well as fee agreement would look like. And it has to be it has to be done by September 30th. So 
I think there's probably still some discussion that needs to go on in terms of what, what goes in and what comes out. But I do think this draft version of what we see sets the framework for what might be the final version. Clearly a huge month overall when it comes to the impact that legislation and policy has across the healthcare industry in so many, so many different facets. We know that the only constant in this industry is change. So I can't wait to hear what we're talking about next month. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in the episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health podcast, and to explore if Dynamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit trendinghealth.com. Tune into the next episode where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.